Hello and welcome to This is a Token with Alex Monroe, the podcast that celebrates all things jewellery. I've spent half a lifetime designing and making jewellery, but what really interests me is what it means to other people. This is a podcast where we ask our guest about the jewellery they cherish most of all. We'll explore the moving, fascinating and often surprising stories connected to each piece and those emotional bonds that we just can't do without. My guest today is the actor Olivia Williams. This is one of those introductions that could go on forever. Olivia's filmography is as long as both my arms. And then there's all her work in television and theatre. But I'll kick off with her performance in Wes Anderson's excellent Rushmore with Bill Murray. And one of my favourites is her as the grieving wife in Sixth Sense with Bruce Willis. There's Mrs Darling in Peter Pan and Education, which I've made a point of watching with each of my daughters. Ghost Writer, there are far too many to mention really. Hyde Park on the Hudson again with Bill Murray. And coming out any minute, The Father with Olivia Colman and Anthony Hopkins. Her television work, well, there's a lot of that too, but we all loved her as Jane Fairfax in Emma. I have to mention Jason and the Argonauts, I'll explain why later. She was in Friends as well, and I've enjoyed her work in the theatre with Richard III, with Ian McKellen. Lots of work in the National Theatre. And my personal favourite was her performance with Olivia Colman in Mosquitoes. There's a lot of red carpet stuff too, all sorts of awards for generally being a wonderful actor. Olivia, welcome to This Is A Token. Thank you very much for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here. Well, it's all my pleasure because I didn't realise that you were kind of busy because you've got a play on at the moment, Mm -hmm. which me and Denise are hopefully going to watch on Saturday night. Now, Mm -hmm. I'm going to get the pronunciation wrong because it's all Greek, (laughs) but you're performing as Hipsipoli. Very good. Hipsipoli at German Street Theatre. Yes. Which is an interpretation of Ovid's... 15 heroes, heroines. Yes, Heroides is what they're called. Right. Because even though they're from Greek myth, he was Roman and he was writing them in Latin. So, oh, right. um, okay. So, yes, he was doing an extraordinary thing, which was for once shine a light on the women of Greek myth and say yeah. all these heroes went off and fought wars and found golden fleeces, but what about the women they left in their wake? And there are many of them and they used them yeah. all appallingly. Yeah. <laughs> so much of real life is reflected in a Greek myth. So I was doing a little research. The islanders, they killed all the husbands. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, they might have been hard done by, but some of the blokes were quite hard done by yeah. as well. Can't quite remember what the women of Lemnos did wrong, but they did something wrong. And so a goddess cursed them with being smelly. Oh. And they were so smelly that the men wouldn't shag them. Right. So the women killed them. <laughs> said shag or die <laughs> and then they killed a lot of them the only one that was wow. saved was Hypsipyle's dad who she had a soft spot for so she said you may live but the rest of them they disrespected their women just, and the women done them just in reminded me of the band the slits this has probably got nothing mm. to do with it mm. they had this great album cover where they were all kind of covered in mud mm. and things 
In the song um, Typical Girls, mm. I think they sing like artificial smell or something. So mm. they kind of sing sarcastically about that women need to have yeah. um, more than their natural smell. Absolutely. Um, wow. Okay. So, <laughs> so, the, so the guys had a bit of a tough time too. But then Jason comes along and your character takes a shine to him. Mm. They have a bit of ding dong. Mm. And then he buggers off. Well, they get married. Okay. She is pregnant with twins. And he just goes, mm. oh, I've just got to go in search of this golden fleece. <laughs> and off he goes. Well, that's kind of a typical story, isn't it? Leaves her with washing up and all the kids. Yeah. But not only that, the only way he gets the golden fleece is by using the magic and wiles of Medea. Yes. Whom he persuades to, you know, kill the serpent. And, you know, she does the whole thing, really. Yes. He couldn't have done it without her. So he starts shagging her, and the whole point of this wonderful letter that Natalie Haynes has translated for me is that she's writing and going, you could have bloody written. That's all I'm saying. Mm. And she's mm. doing that thing, which I think we mm. all hate and we've all experienced, is that she hears it from someone else. Mm. She's oh queen, God. so she turns up at a party, and she's the only one in the room who doesn't know. It's the most <laughs> appalling, sinking feeling oh God. in the room. And Ovid, in the name of Hypsipyle, nails it. She just goes, this bloke turned up, he's from your hometown, yeah. and he said that you're showing somebody else. You could have written and told me. Yeah, well, I can, I can understand. Hmm. Is this like really super early feminist literature or is it just nice to have things written from the woman's point of view? I don't know what makes it feminist literature because, you know, all the sort of things we think of as patriarchy, they did allow women to be queens and to Hmm. be warriors. Hmm. But then they are often referred to as literally, I mean, Briseis, who's another of the Herodes, you know, is literally referred to as a spoil of war. Might as well dive in with a piece. Mm. I put them all on. I thought it was the safest thing to do. Yeah, quite right. These babies. I love those rings. Uh, they've all got a good story attached. So we've got the ring. Yes. Great. Well, I'm going to ask you to describe it, Olivia. Okay. It is a ring. It's golden. And it is two snakes that are, will curl around your finger and their two heads are next to each other, and each head has a diamond in it. Uh, and there's a tiny bit of the tail that brilliantly sort of curls up. Yeah, it's really neat, isn't it? And they make a nice shape mm. on your finger. And I think if you were wearing it, mm. you might not sort of immediately think they were snakes. It might be a slightly sort of swirly pattern mm. ring or something. And it's got a nice bit of sparkle with those diamonds in it. Mm, diamonds in their eyes. Yeah. And it Beautiful. was always on my paternal grandmother's finger. And I never saw it off her finger until it was left to me. How lovely. So I am very passionate about it. And the gold, I mean, it's quite worn, I think. It's Every podcast, I've managed to forget to bring my loop, which mm-hmm. would mean that I could read the hallmark and tell you all about it. Oh. Um, but that's my special skills in forgetting <laughs> things. The gold colour looks worn, and it, it's a slightly sort of antique coloured gold mm. with these two snakes. What's nice is the snakes are 
kind of going in the same direction. Quite often you see snake rings and they're going in opposite directions, but these two are sort of side by side, aren't they? Mm. So it's rather sweet. They look like they're a little couple or something like that. What was your grandmother's name? Joan Haig Williams, and my middle name is Haig. I was going to ask you about that at some point. Do all the women in that side of the family have Haig as a middle name? Or? No, my father had Haig as a middle name, oh. and it was that grandmother's father's first name, and he was called Haig Yago, which sounds like a good name for an actor. Doesn't it? And he was indeed an actor. He was ah. probably born Jago uh, and changed that J to an I. Thespian on it, why yeah. not? And we have a photograph of him playing a butler standing with a big sort of silver service hilarious sort of hood thing and Mary Tempest is sitting at the table. Wow. The play was You Never Can Tell in which the butler is the main character. Um, But we can find absolutely no trace of his name or a performance where Marie Tempest played quite a small part uh, to his lead role. So I think he may have been a fantasist of some sort. I'm kind of sympathetic with Mm. fantasists because Mm. you can so often have a very real memory of something and actually perhaps Mm. you'll find some evidence that it was different or someone Mm. will have a different view. Mm. I think I'm a bit of a fantasist. That's why I'm I'm standing up (laughs) for him. Yeah, it's standing up for fantasy. You know, if you're going to tell a story, you might as well make it sound a little bit better. Over the retelling, things actually change and then you start believing it or something like that. So I'm standing up for fantasists. Good. (laughs) He was an actor, I think, on stage and and off. So that's where your unusual middle name comes from, down through that line of the family. How did you come to be in possession? Was it left in a will or...? Everything was left to my father and my father distributed things uh, evenly between my sister and me. But I had always loved that ring and there is a marquise ring somewhere which I think my sister has which was another thing she wore for best which is a sort of fabulous eye shape um, with a bloody great sapphire in the middle of it and there's part of me that that likes that but it doesn't fit it doesn't go on my finger whereas this one and I have big hands and my grandmother was a very small woman and I think because it's so worn it miraculously went on my finger so there was a kind of serendipity about it. The way it's been done traditionally in our family was uh, when my maternal grandmother died was to lay everything out on the table and Mm. it was my mother and her sister my aunt and my sister and me and we went round the four of us and it was done in seniority so I was the last to pick but we all got to choose a piece each which was (laughs) kind of painful. I kind of feel like people should talk about where things are going at an earlier stage because when I was asking my mother and I might um, actually I don't know if I'm brave enough I might (laughs) podcast her but um, I was asking her about uh, sentimental pieces of jewellery I said what about your engagement ring and all the important bits of jewellery in your life and she said well I've already distributed them amongst the family And I just thought, well, you didn't bloody distribute this So, so um, I've no idea where they've gone. And, I, and I've had people on this podcast who've been left things, and it's actually been a great burden to them. It's like from someone they didn't particularly get on with, and it's a piece that has an all sorts of history, and they don't know what to do with it. They don't want to wear it. They, they just got to sort of keep it. Mm. Um, this ring you had on when you come, do you wear it? I don't actually wear it for that reason, where I just would be so 
devastated if yeah. uh, I lost it. And I have a bad record with that because uh, you might or may not have spotted I'm not wearing a wedding ring because I oh, I, didn't. I did yeah, lose it. Me Having always had hands like shovels, um, which was a quote of a boyfriend who didn't last nice. long. And quite swollen fingers was one of the symptoms of this very strange cancer I had. And so when I was getting better from the cancer, my fingers got very thin for the first time ever and my wedding ring fell off. Oh. But I haven't got it back. Maybe it's going to be one of those lovely stories where someone does some gardening and they pick a carrot and it's... Yeah, (laughs) it's in the carrot. grandmother when you see it do you see her hand and can you almost smell her and sort of I can see the whole room and she had lots of rings and she was the generation that wore jewellery every day and there was some jewellery that she never took off she had ring dividers to keep the big stones apart and she would talk me through the jewellery and she had quite a posh voice but I'm in her drawing room she's sitting in her chair and it was the room in which I read Alice through the looking glass Mm. and she had a huge mirror above the fireplace and I imagined myself in that room being Alice going through the glass and finding a whole other world on the other side so that's kind of the interesting thing about jewellery is that it is an object that you have that can immediately transport you back to someone but the peculiar thing about jewelry is that you can also wear it so something like a wedding ring is will connect you to the fact that you're married but it's different from a chess set that's been handed down or something because it's next to your skin the whole time and it's one of those big problems isn't it with jewelry if you get a piece that means so much to you you can often be too scared to wear it Mm -hmm. because the thought of losing it would be too awful did you find this because you were coming out to do this uh, podcast? Or No, there's a box, a box full of boxes. And yeah. I pulled yeah. the box full of boxes out and went through them. And I knew I was looking for that. Yeah. But was really, really happy when I found, you know, there's that slight queasy feeling with these things where you go, I haven't seen yeah. it in a while. Is it yeah. going to be where I thought it yeah. was? And occasionally, very occasionally in my life, I'm more organised than I thought I had been. And in, this was a happy occasion when that was in exactly the box I thought it was in, inside the box. It, it was be. where it was supposed to be. Yes. If that was in my house, I think one of my girls would have had it and worn it and lost it at a party. When my girls were very young and I, my engagement ring, which I haven't brought, which I didn't bring in favour of this one, which we'll talk hmm. about in a minute, but uh, I found it in their sort of box of Lego. Mm. And they had obviously been in there, gone shiny. And, uh, yeah, and, uh, <laughs> but at least you away. found it. That's yes. good. <laughs> Super. So your grandmother, was she uh, around at your house or did you used to go to her house? I understood that you had a very happy childhood, so you didn't need an escape from home and things. What was it about her? It's quite nice sometimes to skip a generation, isn't it? I loved her. She was a brilliant grandmother. She always had huge pointers that she would feed a sort of cut off the joint and three veg. My father was the absolute apple of her eye. I think she told me, I think she'd had eight miscarriages. So he was incredibly precious. Mm. Her husband, my grandfather, I never met, who was an equally tall and handsome man Mm. and was a doctor. And she 
adored him. So my father was the sort of embodiment of all this. And looking back on it now, quite hard on my mum. But mm. she paid for my sister and me to learn to ride, partly because she loved horses and riding, but she also thought we'd meet the right sort of person <laughs> on horseback. What she didn't know is that... <laughs> Since her youth, the only people who ride a lot of horses are sort of (laughs) trenchant, posh lesbians. And uh, I've met a lot of fascinating trenchant, posh lesbians on horseback. Served you well. Not a lot of um, uh, suitable young men for marrying. I feel bad because I... (laughs) I told my girls, we, we tried to send them off to Crystal Palace to learn how to dive because I thought, when we had posh friends with swimming pools, yeah. if you sat there as a teenage boy yeah. and a girl would come in and she could do a beautiful seamless dive, that was the, the biggest thing for me. So I, I was trying to persuade my daughters that if you could dive, you'd be able to, you know, attract you them. That's but genius. We're a kind of belly flop family. So, and anyway, you know, I don't know, certainly with, for, for me and my kids, anything I suggest they do, they're just going to do the opposite. So. Yeah. I think that plan of parents or grandparents suggesting that their children do things in order to attract boys is just doomed for failure, right? Well, it made me yearn for a time. I mean, I I was a sort of fully paid up member of the Brideshead generation. And I mean, she loved Evelyn Waugh and I I loved Evelyn Waugh. And, you know, I wanted that to be true. Yeah. (laughs) But it it wasn't. It was not true. But (laughs) I loved all her stories at that time. And her brother-in-law was very racy. A man who had a sort of fast car and you know she was she was quite racy she'd been a designer she had been designing wallpaper in London as a job in the mm. 20s so she was a quite pioneering for her class and I've met your mother I'm feeling like I'm on her side more now <laughs> I'm sort of feeling for her a bit because she's obviously has this very charismatic <laughs> side of the family who <laughs> doted after your father <laughs> did, did they get on well your grandmother and your mother or, or was there any friction I'm just on her side at the moment they, there was friction I mean I adore my dad even more because he married a quite small my mum's not tall but very tall northern catholic career woman and they met at at law school my dad was sitting in front of her in law lectures blowing smoke rings and he would take a different girl out to go and look at a city church every lunchtime because he loved his architecture and one of these very posh slowly girls said to my mum oh you know that Graham Williams he's such a boy I'd go and look at one of these dreadful churches and my mother thought if I pretend I like the church I've got the girl. And you're in there. And they got married in Manchester in a Catholic church with no music because my mother was marrying out of faith. And uh, there's a famous story of the in-laws meeting and my father was driving my northern grandparents around Richmond Park. Mm. And he pointed out the deer and Richmond Park's a great site. And apparently my northern grandmother said, we've got better deer than that in Lyme Park, <laughs> which has become... Uh, family say. I like them. I um, like them. Yeah. I'm on their side. Yeah, they were, you know, they weren't sort of, they weren't going to be put down. They were, they were not taking any of this. I'm also interested about how we met. We must have met somewhere. I'll tell you and, how. Oh, good. Sorry. That's really good. I, uh... I was in a play and I wanted to be wearing many sort of gold chains with pendants on. And mm. the wardrobe supervisor was a man called Christopher. Oh, he knew yes. You and He's an he, old friend. He said, I can get this jewellery, choose what you want. And so yeah. I chose several pieces and that's when I became addicted to your jewellery. And then on another occasion, I was actually going into the London Bridge shop to yeah. buy a present and Hermione... Yes, 
who Hermione Norris was in there. Yes, and she said, "Hey, Olivia." Um, by the way, you should meet Alex. And um, I had just come from Bikram Yoga, which is just around the corner. And I was literally standing there in a sort of puddle of sweat with my hair stuck to my face. I was beetroot red and it's a bit like the women of Lemnos, probably a bit smelly (laughs) because Bikram makes you very smelly. And uh, I was like, Hermione, don't introduce me to this gorgeous <laughs> jewellery designer right now. But thank God she did. Well, I'm sounding like a right old lovey now. But <laughs> what we didn't know was that you were at school with my lovely editor, Lydia Sison, who helped me so massively when I did my book. <laughs> and then when I look at your school back in those days, am I right in thinking Helena Bonham Carter was there as well? Yeah. So it was obviously quite a place to be quite a time and it's produced these very independent intelligent feminist women that have all gone on to do all these different things and my memory of the <laughs> of that time that sort of early 80s or whatever in um, Ipswich was just completely the opposite where it was pretty bloody grim <laughs> I probably moved to London in the in sort of 1983 or something mm. like that so you were probably you know starting your GCSEs or something like that then they, do you know what it's long enough for, okay, for them to be O levels so oh yes of not, course yeah not yeah, quite me too. that bad <laughs> um, was it an amazing place your school and did you love it or was it competitive and it was I mean Avril Burgess our esteemed headmistress would be very happy to hear what you have to say it it produced extraordinary independent very well educated women who've gone on to do extraordinary things Mm. and I was very lucky to be there it was pretty tough I went from Primrose Hill Junior School which was a state school uh, my nieces were all at Primrose Hill Junior School so that's nice God bless it I mean there was still the Inner London Education Authority it was very learn what you need to incredibly mixed ability and I went and no uniform and teachers by their first names and then to go to Southampton was you know stand up say good morning this you know and uh, academically I was just at sea at the beginning so I had this sort of idyllic up till 11 childhood it, it always seems to be in slanting autumnal leaves you know the canal Camden Lock you know going to Primrose Hill Junior School and then they, this kind of hideous introduction to I think to sort of snobbery really I, I remember my dad coming to pick me up from someone's birthday party and there were sort of white carpets that were sort of ankle deep mm, mm. and he'd come in his gardening kit and his trousers were done up with a piece of garden twine and mine was the only parent asked to wait outside. If you mm, wouldn't mm, mind mm. not not coming in. <laughs> yeah, so it sounds like there's a sort of bits of competition on, on for different things, like mm. whether it's how nice your house is, mm. and, and then at school, I guess it's how smart you are, and mm. there were all these different sort of things coming into play. Going back to my grandmother and the riding, I remember she would paid for me to go on a riding course for a week, and um, you got marked out of ten. You had a pony for the week, and I thought I was being marked on turnout for the turnout of the pony so I polished this pony to shone and plaited its mane and it was only on the last day when I'd come bottom of turnout every day that it was my turnout that I turned up Jeez, in Oshkosh that's not fair <laughs> dungarees and wellies and every other child was in sort of you know jodcoat yeah, and yeah, smock yeah. I was caught between being posh and being not posh that's quite a nice prices. place to be certainly when I moved to London I changed my accent to so I turned into a bit of a you know that awful sort of Tony Blair thing where they're, where they're posh and then they sort of say, say all right, mate, on the end of it sort of thing. <laughs> I turned into this sort of ghastly trying not to be 
to, because I was ashamed of my accent. And actually, my accent's changed a lot since um, I was young because I was just really ashamed of it. I didn't want to be the person that I was. Um, and I wanted to be just sort of accepted everywhere. So I, I had a sort of trouble with snobbery in a kind of reverse snobbery sort of way. And and, um, and also I think my problem being about a sort of effeminate boy was that was another sort of problem where I was trying to work out my way. Mm. But um, it feels like a lot of your gang from your school mm. must have had a great deal of intelligence and self-confidence because we all sort of went on to Oxford and Cambridge and they were all very smart and successful. So must have done something right in that sense it was a very good school I just wasn't a very happy teenager and most people aren't I always was slightly 45 and got on better right with so you weren't down there sort of the roundhouse or the Camden Palace and you, you weren't on the King's Road looking I at the punk was, rockers and... I was but I wasn't moving with the fast gang I remember my mother my amazing mother leaning over my bed and going your time will come it's just not now okay, and yeah. she was right it did yeah, come got it. but yeah. yeah, I'd never felt like the coolest cat. Well, I did go to Camden Palace. Camden Lock was happening and I bought a load of punk kit very late on in, in punk, you know, when it was all over. But it was the sort of blondie generation. So it was the yeah, post-punk yeah. generation. Yeah. And I dyed my hair black. and you know. It sounds like you had a nice family and you got on well with them. And, yeah. and I think looking back for myself, I had to discover who I was by by doing the opposite. I was I was reactionary. So if anyone told me to do anything, I just did the opposite. So I was forever in trouble with the police and with my parents and doing all sorts of, you know, things that I shouldn't be doing. But I, I, sort of looking back on it, I was trying to work out who I was and the way I was doing that was just to do the complete opposite of what I was supposed to. But maybe if you get on well with your family, you're quite happy to sort of discuss something and think, oh yeah, that would be a good idea to study for my exams because that makes sense that things are going well. Whereas if anyone told me to do any work at school I just you know slam the door and leave and so I was sort of left being a jeweler because Mm. I didn't have any other options left for me and so I'm, I'm intrigued by people that do well through the established route and go on to... Did you go to Cambridge? I did. But I still... Well, say that. It was the days when you could get into Cambridge on a bit of the old blah, blah, blah. And I was a very lazy student, but I would stay awake all night to read a novel. I did love the classics, but I was bad at translating. And I turned up at Cambridge and my first supervision was with a terrifying uh, classicist at Peterhouse which was still an all-male college and they sent a woman from Newnham which is an all-female college for supervisions there and he asked me to translate the leader article of the times into Ciceronian Latin and I went back to Newnham and I changed to English. <laughs> I was like, no, I'm not going to do that. I love looking at your career. The fact that you're doing this amazing play, the German Street Theatre, based on Ovid's letters that he wrote about female experience. But then, you know, not that long ago, I haven't seen it, but you were on telly in... And I, I just saw the poster of Jason and the Argonauts. And it feels like you've got both ends of the classics covered. Like, mm-hmm. I'm guessing that Jason and the Argonauts TV series wasn't a, a sort of academic study of, of or maybe it was maybe I'll go to, well I have to tread very carefully because it was directed <laughs> and I think adapted by a very very dear friend of mine who is incredibly learned and actually you'd be interested it's the son of Paula Rager Nick you know, Willing I'm just interesting looking at your career mm. at, at just how varied it so on the one hand something like Friends is quite a very sort of popular mm-hmm. um, easy watching sort of thing and then you'll do something really quite 
quite intellectual and heavy duty. How do you select your work? Are you very democratic? We talked a little bit about snobbery. Are you kind of anti-snobbery in the performing arts? And if, if something's good, it doesn't have to be highbrow. It can still be entertaining. I mean, is that part of your approach? I mean, there are the things I just snap the arm off my agent, you know, when they mm. come in. And I saw Ovid Heroides and Natalie Haynes in the email. And I said, yes, without I mean, no reading any further bear in mind we were also sort of in the middle of lockdown so it's like any work <laughs> at that point um yeah. there are things that it's just not so easy to say yes you know dealing I did a lot of work in the in the early noughties uh in the states and just negotiating with um film companies and the process of getting a job there are so many people who have to say yes to you um, and I had this brilliant LA agent where I, I said, do I want to pursue this? You know, they're giving me such a bloody hard time. Mm. I'm not sure I can face jumping through any more hoops or being told I'm too tall or short or fat or thin. And you said, keep saying yes till it's time to say now. And she, her thing was, let me fight for this job for you. And when we've got it and they're begging on their knees with a checkbook in their hand, then we tell, if you don't want to do it, then we tell them to fuck off. Yeah, yeah, cool. Yeah, but, uh, keep saying yes first time to say no is a really good motto for life. Yeah, that sounds good. That's helpful. Yeah, and having been chased around a few sofas by Harvey Weinstein, <laughs> I can say that no. it's really important to know when to say no. For real? Yeah, for real. Twice. Twice I fell for it. Oh, my God. But anyway, um, I managed to escape uh, unscathed, and I have every, every sympathy Um um, for the women who, who didn't. man mm. when you hear about what goes on it's horrifying and you sort of feel slightly ashamed and you you have no idea and I think the same thing happened with the Black Lives Matter movement I thought everything was fine and particularly in my industry that was jewellery mm. and then you start to listen what goes on and it's absolutely horrifying and Do I don't I mean, feel I don't... bad because I'm a man no. and I don't feel bad because I'm white but mm. I feel bad that I was able to not notice things and not find out about things for mm. so long I feel we have a responsibility now and particularly with Black Lives Matter it's no good you know you actually need to do some do some work and do some listening and, and just hear what other people's experiences are and then take some action yes um, so we've got your lovely grandmother's ring. I think this is a gorgeous... I'm going to photograph these and put them on the website, but this is an absolutely gorgeous ring. I think the two things I like about it best, I love the way that they're side by side, which gives them a sort of companionability. Mm. But I love this little flick of the tails on either side mm. that makes such a beautiful it's almost like an art deco-y sort of shape on it but yeah that's a beautiful ring I wish I had my loop and we could tell how old it was and things like that but <laughs> give me your next piece please um, Olivia this has a wonderful story and is is another one that's very difficult to wear because it's so precious so my husband gave me that 
it sort of in honour of my first child, Esme. I just want to describe the ring, mm-hmm. which is a white gold or platinum, beautiful ring, which is stone set across the front with rubies and diamonds. Or are they not? Do you know what the stones are? I don't know. You can tell my jewellery expertise here. <laughs> it's in quite a high gallery. From the side, it almost looks like a forest of, of sparkly stones. And the stones all run and sparkle along the front in sort of diagonal stripes. It's a pretty ring. Mm. I love so, it because it's pretty. I love the colours of the stones. I like them set in like sort of barbershop stripe. Yes, that's <laughs> nice. Yes. But the sentimental value is sort of breathtaking with this. It belonged to my mother-in-law who is deceased and died when my husband was 11 and the ring was given to a woman that he calls auntie I don't think she's a blood relative a woman called Jerry and she wore it from that day forward and she never took it off she was living in Newark New Jersey in the type of places that African Americans often live in America which we don't see or hear about which Mm. is proper poverty proper terrible housing and Jerry has lived through three separate house fires Wow! and those house fires aren't you know arson they're bad electrics from badly built housing and badly maintained where no law stops a landlord renting a place where the electrics are bad and she lost two of her children in three separate house fires but that ring survived and when I'd been married to Rashan for about a year we took our daughter Esme with us to meet that side of the family and uh, we met Jerry and Jerry took that ring off her finger and gave it to me. Wow, Jerry sounds like an amazing person. She is amazing. One of the things that I really love about that story and I love about jewellery is it can serve so many functions but one thing for people who come from quite a poor background and from difficult circumstances it's always been a way of wearing a bit of wealth and a bit of security and what I think we probably don't realise is that If houses do burn down, you're basically left with what you're wearing. And if you have a couple of nice rings and a a couple of necklaces, you're at least guaranteed a meal the next day. So it's a different way of viewing jewellery. But luckily she never had to, I mean, I don't know, maybe she pawned this from time to time and if she needed something. But the nice thing is that she kept it throughout her life. But I think the significance for people who have really come from difficult backgrounds of jewellery, that it's something that is just theirs. And I think also for women, I mean, it's just theirs and they can get out in one piece with it is incredibly important. What an amazing woman. How many times did you see? Is she still alive today? Jerry's still alive. I only met her once. It was a very extraordinary day. My husband had never known his father. He was sort of kept away from his father because my husband was brought to Britain when he was six. And um, on this occasion, when I met Jerry, Jerry had found Rashan's aunt, Rashan's father's sister, after his father had died. And it was the first time my husband walked into a room and saw someone he was related to on that side of the family. Wow. And it was extraordinary because there was someone staring back at him who looked very like him. And he hadn't seen that since his mum had died when he was 11. And he'd never met his father's side of the family at all. So that ring is from this extraordinary day. What a beautiful story. This is something that really fascinates me about jewellery is how it can 
link us and relate us back in with people and places. Mm. So this is such an important piece. Mm. You can't wear it because it's too important. I mean, if you lost this, or do you wear it for a special if you're going out, you know, for a sort of well, ditzy thing? my engagement ring is quite a big sort of 70s cluster. Mm. It's a lovely cluster. Mm. Um, <laughs> and it's difficult to wear because it catches on everything. Actually, I have worn that more as an engagement ring uh, mm. with my wedding ring. Again, since I lost my wedding ring and my fingers have changed size I haven't worn it but of all the pieces of jewellery I've worn that's the one I've worn the most. Obviously your side of the family is very present and like I said I've met your mum. Mm -hmm. How do your children connect with their father's side of the family? His mum has two half sisters who are called the aunties and they are Mm. very present in our lives. They weren't present in my husband's life but they came back into his life. Quite a moving story. He was in a play, uh, he was in Hamlet that went round the States and they kind of turned up at Hamlet in Washington DC when he was on stage and they reconnected. So Gwendolyn and Jackie, this was their sister's ring and they remember her wearing it. It's our only real connection to Rashan's mum. It's like your little bit of glue that, that is the common denominator between all these people mm. and, and I guess incredibly important because it's an important part of your children's heritage. We have the same trouble in my family because Denise's father has never really been around and her mother died quite young so the kind of Liverpudlian side of the family has been a bit sort of diminished by the overpowering presence of my side of the family but it's 50% of my children's heritage and they love it when they go back there and I just think it's quite important to have some connection with who you are and where you've come from luckily for Denise there were three daughters and a mother left a ring with three diamonds in it so we were able to split it up so those diamonds now go down through the family three ways this is going to be impossible to divide between two daughters well fortunately there's that and the engagement ring was yes. also belonged to Joanne um, yeah and will you will you do the same thing where you put them on a table and say well you're oldest so you choose first well or... it's difficult because Esme is Esme Ruby and oh. um, so I think Ruby was Joanne my mother-in-law's middle mm. name as well so mm. I think that might have to go to Esme as she was there when we met the family um, and Roxy will have the uh, big cluster with the Australian moonstone in it. Yeah, and there'll be more bits of jewellery. There'll be bits of jewellery of yours. Yeah. And, you know, there's other yeah. things to think about for well, the future. Yes, but there's the snakes. <laughs> but the, the snakes, which is, I think, I don't know, I just really like the design of it. Thank you for that. We've got two gorgeous rings in front of us. What should we look at next? Um, Let's do all the rings. Okay, so this is another ring. It's a gold ring and it is a sort of infinity symbol made into a ring. So it looks like it's sort of one continuous piece of gold. I don't think it is, but it it looks like it is. It's a hell of a job to make because I've made knot rings before. I would call it a figure of eight knot. Mm -hmm. It's a sort of sailor's knot. This knot I used to do when I was sailing, but it almost sits like a bow. So this is quite thick gold. It's a beautiful 
colour gold again, about two and a half, three millimetres thick. And then it's been tied into this figure of eight on the top of the ring. So there's a kind of infinity quality to it because it goes up and round. And I imagine this is quite a tactile ring that you'd sort of always be fiddling with. It's beautiful. Yeah. So tell me, how did you come to have this ring? So a large part of my career and some of my happiest times have been spent in California in Los Angeles. And that is a ring that is given to members of a family called the Thacker family to every woman on their 30th birthday. That sounds like a tongue twister. Every woman in the Thacker family on their 30th birthday. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) The member of the Thacker family who gave me that is actually called Judy Schneider. And she is my friend who looks after me when I'm in LA and from my very first trip to LA which was in a play in Richard III understudying Lady Anne and I stayed in her beautiful house in Hancock Park. You don't hear about neighbourhoods like Hancock Park in LA. It's a real old-fashioned sort of open garden picket fence neighbourhood in that part of LA and you can walk from the house to these nice row of shops called Larchmont what nobody walks in LA nobody walks in LA except in Larchmont and she gave me a Thacker ring long before my 30th birthday so in two senses I was uh, honoured to be given that that's ring. so that's a lovely ring it just sounds really romantic so I've been to LA a couple of times and I really don't like flying so I think it's put me off LA not liking flying it's just huge and I've never quite worked out what the hell it is mm-hmm. other than this big sprawling mass that I found slightly scary at times and but we all have a rather romantic view of LA and you have been an actress in Hollywood films mm-hmm. and you've been to award ceremonies so you've seen the kind of glamorous side of LA, which just sounds so exciting that I know nothing about. And I've seen it all from this woman's beautiful Spanish-style house in this beautiful neighbourhood, which is very un-LA. So from her lovely house and lovely green lawn that looks very sort of New Englandy, mm. um, I've set off for, you know, the Vanity Fair party at the Oscars or to the studios. My first movie in Los Angeles uh, was called The Postman. And mm. I was flown to Los Angeles to have dinner with Kevin Costner. And after dinner, he didn't even ask where I was going to be or what I was going to do next. I cheekily just said, um, I don't know where you're going now, but could you drop me off? and dropped me off on the way around the corner on Larchmont uh, where my friend lives and he looked a bit sort of amazed that I'd ask and then he said he went yeah no okay I'll turn my way and um, he dropped me off outside Judy's house and it was her birthday party and the entire party was sort of had their face pressed up against the you window. So cool. And I stumbled up the uh, up the drive and uh, and went in and sort of said, I got the job. <laughs> um, so yeah, I think she's the reason I didn't wake up in a pool of my own vomit on Sunset Boulevard. She mm. kept me sane. At the end of every day there was a glass of Chardonnay and um, she she loves tennis, so she always had the tennis on, and we would sit and watch tennis and uh, drink. Shopping. How come a friend? How did you know her, and why was she so generous to it's you? It's the and... lawyers. Okay, oh, so my parents were mafia. always made friends with people at the California Bar Association dinner in Oxford. The other thing our family does is you say come and stay we come and stay and they <laughs> stayed with these lovely lawyers and I was 25 touring America with the National Theatre and they said when you get to LA you must look up our legal friends I said don't, 
don't be ridiculous. I'm not going to LA to hang out with lawyers. By the time I got to LA four months later, all I wanted was <laughs> to be in a nice house yeah, like with clean cooking. sheets yeah, and some nice lawyers to talk to. The lawyers went in town. The lawyer said, you've got to contact my cousin, Judy. And she's my mum's age. She's a grown-up. And I turned up at her house, again, like the smelly women of Lemnos, looking like Pigpen. And she welcomed me in. And Aww. and I stayed with her for the whole of the LA leg of the tour. Are you still in touch? We are so friends in touch. We and... Zoomed just the other day. Oh, how lovely. My... I, what a generous... She sounds like a lovely, generous... She's an amazing woman. Sort of, I think you should call her auntie. Because mm. if we had a nicer tradition, we'd be calling lovely people like that auntie wouldn't we but... yeah we've sort of done a child swap because her daughter's very close to my parents but she's not my mum she is my yeah. friend yeah. she is an 83 year old friend and I celebrate friendships across Aww. the generation so I think it's called a friendship knot it's a Great. standard Tiffany design it was a Tiffany design for years Oh, nice. I wonder if you're ever going to be out and about and you'll meet another Thacker and you'll sort of do the yeah, special... Yeah, yeah, it's a fist bump. It's <laughs> <laughs> a special ring. I like that ring. It's a striking ring and it's beautiful. Thank you. Um... Let's have a look at another piece. Well, Should yeah, we go to Afghanistan? Jump, this is great. Give us some background. Why have you got pieces of jewellery from, from Afghanistan? When I was at the height of my sort of Brideshead Revisited obsession, so I was heading towards my A-levels. I managed to get an invite, God knows how, to a masked ball in Oxford. And at the masked ball, a man held my hand, clicked his heels and kissed my hand. His name was... Radek Sikorsky and he was a student at Oxford he was Polish and he alleged that's how well uh, raised Polish boys greet girls anyway who are we I was like, differently I'll take it anyway we started going out with each other and he had been brought up in communist Poland and his ambition was to go back to Poland and bring democracy to Poland mm. he wanted to enter Warsaw on a white charger not a romantic in any sense I fancy him. I fancy him already, <laughs> Olivia. <laughs> he wanted to go and face combat. At the, I may have to tread carefully because he's now an MEP and was vice president of Poland uh, briefly. But at the time, he wanted to see active combat against the Russians. Mm. He wanted to fight a Russian. Well, so you know, you we all do, obviously. A, you can substitute <laughs> another word um, for for fight. Um, yes. But I think that might be an actionable yes. verb to use. Yes. Well, luckily, we've only got one listener, yes. so, and they won't tell. So. <laughs> so, the, so the best way at the time to blankety-blank a Russian was in Afghanistan. So he was planning a trip to Afghanistan and and he got it funded he knew all sorts of clever ways so he went to Afghanistan the great city of Herat ostensibly to do a survey for the arts and cultural side of the UN I can't remember what the organisation is called right Herat Herat. is whereabouts in Afghanistan have we got any idea where that is it's a long walk from the Pakistan border, northwest frontier province, through Peshawar and... On the Khyber Pass. Uh, yeah. And, great carry-on film. Uh, genius uh, <laughs> bit of rhyming slang, which I use a lot. <laughs> and um, he had this plan. And I had a, a summer. <laughs> and so I followed him out there. Okay, can I, can I just interrupt you a little bit? Because <laughs> yeah. this is the point 
at which I wanted to say to your mum, because you were studying for your A-levels, what? what I've done my A-levels, I've got into Cambridge. Okay, okay. So this was All my right. first oh, summer. So you're, you're this a proper was my adult. first summer you you'd go. of university. So by coincidence, mm. I spent a lot of time in Peshawar, and I know the Khyber Pass, oh, and okay. I've done quite a lot of work the there. Karakoram Highway. It is a beautiful place mm. with beautiful people, but I was there I, probably about 10 years ago or something, but it is flipping dangerous. <laughs> I'm just trying to get my head around you. As a single woman, did you go on your own? No, I went with my friend Sophie. Oh, Sophie came, good. <laughs> Sophie is not only the nicest, kindest, funniest, most brilliant person in my life, but she's also incredibly sensible and daughter <laughs> of a high court judge at this point. And brilliant. Radek was an incredibly plausible person with a list of addresses that we were going to be staying at. So we stayed with a politician in Islamabad who'd married an English woman whom Radek knew. And we stayed with Afghan Aid, which was an aid organisation uh-huh. in Peshawar. There were three million refugees in Peshawar at the time, which sounds like nothing, but at the time it sounded like a lot. <laughs> I think when I was there, it was probably um, Taliban refugees in, in Peshawar. So there was quite a big Afghan quarter in, in the old town with all this amazing... I was there for the jewellery and, yeah. and with this absolutely amazing jewellery. Yeah. Um, Afghan jewellery was mainly silver and lapis. They were scraping together money by, by mining, but they weren't mining in a very environmental way. You know, they'd sort of blow up a mountain and then... Yeah. Not only environmental, but no, the human loss in mining is... Appa- I mean, everything about it is appalling um, but um, when I was there I mean it was dangerous for the time but compared with now you know the threat was from the Russians it was before you know 9-11 it was before what we understand now as radical Islam and let's be clear that the Mujahideen were our allies and they were supplied with stinger missiles by the Americans Mm. to shoot down Russian aeroplanes Little did they know at that point that those same Stinger missiles would be shooting down American aeroplanes after the Russians had left and after an aeroplane had been flown into the Twin Towers. But at the time, these guys were the good guys and they hadn't been radicalised at Mm. that point. Mm. It was a dangerous place to go, but it wasn't dangerous like it is now. So you were you were following a Polish boyfriend aristocrat when, who was I going mean, to he said, you know, have he, a pop at some Russians yeah. and, and you thought you'd just smuggle yourself through the Khyber Pass up to Afghanistan to hang out with the boyfriend. Yeah. So it all seemed very normal. <laughs> I wanted to do something adventurous. It was. When I met him, never mind I wasn't sure where Afghanistan was. I wasn't that sure where Poland was, I don't think. Yeah. I did history O-level, but you know, I, my head was so far up my arse I didn't know yeah. what I was doing and he showed me that all you have to do to engage with these things is get on a plane and go. It's the loveliness of youth, isn't it, that you just don't think things through properly. And also, it's it's true, you do just have to get on a plane and go, and you're there, and, and it was all fine. It's so the first some... thing that uh, Radek brought back for me from his first trip was this beautiful... Okay, um, that's great. May I bracelet? describe it? Yes, please. So it's like a, a bracelet that's open one side, so you slip it onto your wrist. I'm not going to try it. It's beautifully handmade. It's beaten silver with a lovely, what I'd call a very typical Afghan pattern around the outside. And then this um, beautiful lapis set in little discs as a pattern in the centre of it. And what's interesting is it's got a kind of goldy colour either side of the pattern. And I can't work out whether they've sort of gold plated it or beaten some gold in there and why the metals are different colour. 
But it's really typical of beautiful, intricate Afghan jewellery work. And the lapis, like everything's lapis out there because that's where all the lapis... I mean, I know that you get a lapis elsewhere, but it's the main place where lapis is, is mined. And I have in a the... deep connection through the grandmother with the uh, snake ring because she always wore a big piece of lapis Yeah. Dead center um it's not like chain. it's not I like hugely it. fashionable because it's i think it's a bit associated with kind of tribally sort of mm. jewelry rather than fashionable western jewelry mm. sort of thing so my like, grandmother always said that russian lapis was the best yeah um, which i guess yeah. must be near the afghan border and i connect it with the sort of the romanovs and and yeah. that kind of uh, rich russian decorative it's a great um, colour and it's great with the silver. And actually, what I really like about this is that it's beautifully antiqued. I don't know whether it was antiqued on purpose and it stayed antiqued or if it's just sort of taken on a nice pattern. I just but, um, rubbed some silver cleaner on it this morning. Well, it looks great. It looks <laughs> it was well black worn. this morning. <laughs> it's got a few nice little dents on it. Did you wear it a lot? I did wear it a lot then. I, again, it's been something that's been on a, a shelf, I think parading gifts from ex-lovers is probably not a good idea. Yeah, a little cabinet in the front <laughs> yeah. room, why not? <laughs> That's so That was cool. the first thing that came back. And then when I went out there in pursuit of said boyfriend, I bought these two in the market myself. And I was, it's with some shame. I think I've recently watched The Life of Brian and felt the necessity to go through some slightly appalling, haggling ritual when I bought those. And actually the very nice people at Afghan Aid who became good friends, um, one of them came up to me and said, you know, they've got nothing, Olivia, just pay him what he asked. I remember it with such shame now. And I wish I'd given him yeah, 20 I, times. I'm much. sure we've all done it. And I don't think you should be hard on yourself because you, you actually do it because you think that's what you ought to do and yeah. you've been told to do it and the guidebooks tell you to do mm. it. Well, it, you know, it was just a fair exchange of goods and anyway they're so lovely so again they're all beautifully handmade and they're two open bangles with three really nice um, cornelians set in and it's amazing happening which I guess is cast and then soldered on. But they're, they're just really nicely made. They're beautiful. I love the, the triangles of dots. They always remind me of bunches of grapes. So it's sort of granulation where you get yeah. these little dots and you stack them up and make nice patterns. So you would almost have these sort of half rounds with all these little triangles coming off and stuff like that. Yeah, it's great. It's beautiful. And then I, I love, and I thought you'd be interested, this is a hat um, so decorated nice. with gold thread. And I'm obsessed with paisleys. I love them. We're, oh. we're allowing this in because it's an accessory. Oh, good. I'm very glad. You know, that is jewellery. It's gold thread on on fabric. Um, And where does jewellery stop and and clothing begin? It's a textile. No, I think it's great. I bought some little shoes for each of my daughters when I came back. Mm. Very much in the same style, Mm. all beautifully hand embroidered. And Mm. and, um, do you ever wear it? I don't wear it. I've got a huge head. I had a great sort of 60s top knot on. I would put it on top of that top knot. And then I have these two silk scarves with Radek brought back from Afghanistan on his first trip. And the colours, just honestly, they are the same colours they were 30 years ago. And it almost makes me weep to put yellow and green and magenta Mm. Mm. together with that courage and audacity and they are jewel colours and and I just thought that with the hat and the bangles they make sense so nice do you know what the, the, the trouble with me is that mm. and it'll kind of show you how I live my life through crappy movies but I've, I've got a bit of um, Timothy Dalton in the James Bond <laughs> when he's hanging out with the Mujahideen <laughs> um, and he's wearing all this sort of stuff mm. 
But um, that, that's great. Finish the story, though. You met up when you got there, well, didn't you? No, we or... didn't. No, oh. the irony was he was got stuck in Afghanistan and Sophie and I had an extraordinary time. And most of our time was actually created by this incredible journalist called Rory Peck. And we went to Chitral, which was this extraordinary remote area, the Kalash Valley, where they mm. went. I don't know if you went there. No. It was extraordinary. I... And um, we ha- saw unbelievably beautiful and extraordinary and terrifying things and drove a, a little way along the Caracorn Highway. Maybe you had a better time without meeting up with, with, your, <laughs> with a guy. But obviously he survived it. and He did and, and he wrote a book about on. his journey and, yeah. uh, and he did go back and he was part of restoring democracy to Poland for a while and now he's an MEP which is such a political turnaround from the man I knew in the 80s that uh, um, I can tease about him really? about it mercilessly. He obviously had ambitions. <laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs> What's nice is that we have before us three rings that have lovely connections to three amazing women, really. They're all quite different women, aren't they? Mm. But they've all had an important impact on your life. Mm. And it's a really nice way of sort of transporting us back through. And then we've got your bits here, mm-hmm. which I just think are so brilliant because they're a little relic to a kind of crazy thing that you did. And I still, at some point, if I can get to go out for a coffee with your mum, I'd just love to say <laughs> what was going through your head. Because I guess if one of your daughters said, I'm off to um, Afghanistan, mum, because I met a guy at a party that I fancy, um, you'd, <laughs> you'd, 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 you might act differently. <laughs> I know, I don't know. Oh, is that, is that I don't t- know that I don't know what I think they took what precautions you could at that time, which was we want the name and phone number and address of sort of, of two places mm, we can mm. try and find you <laughs> if it all goes wrong. But now when my 16-year-old girl goes out, I want a sort of uh, a screenshot of Google Maps with her blue dot yeah. on it and a street name. You know, every couple of hours. Yeah, phone me when you're on the way back. And, yeah. and then you'd lie there awake waiting for the yeah, door to close. So I, yeah, I, I did raise it with my mum the other day. I was like, you were very trusting. But on the other hand, you know, she was a um, criminal defence barrister. She defended a lot of drug dealers. And she had given me the lowdown on every drug, on how it would be mm. sold to me, how would it look mm. like, where people hid it when they went through customs. You know, when I was very young, so I was quite damaged with information about, yeah. you know, if some incredibly handsome bloke at, you know, Islamabad Airport says, could you just carry this package back to my friend... Yeah in Brixton for me, you know, that you don't... It might not be a good idea. (laughs) No matter how nice he is. Don't do that. Brilliant. All right, look, Libby, I think we should go and get lunch. Lovely. Because I made a soup. Lovely. All right, thank you very much for being on the podcast, Libby. That's super. Thank you for listening to my podcast. If you'd like to see some of the pieces we've been talking about, or for more information about any of the issues we've discussed, please check out our website and follow the links to the podcast page. You'll also find information on how to share your own stories, give a bit of feedback, or have a look at all the jewellery-related things I've been up to recently. We've also got some great jewellery-making tutorials on our YouTube channel. There's lots to see. Just go to 
www.alexmonroe.com <laughs>